Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hey, Karen. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you, Anne? Good, good. I'm excited to do a podcast with you again today. Um, So what do you have? What would you like to start with? So I was interested in a new study that came out talking about vitamin D supplementation as it relates to breastfeeding. So um, there's an article in the March um, 2022 Breastfeeding Medicine by Laura Andrews et al. titled Comparison of Infant Bone Mineral Content and Density After Infant Daily Oral Vitamin D 400 International Unit Supplementation versus Nursing Mother oral 6,400 international unit supplementation, a randomized controlled lactation study. Um, So as you know, there have been several studies in recent years that had to do with um, the best ways to supplement breastfed babies with um, vitamin D. And this is because in general, while breast milk is amazing, it does um, not have sufficient vitamin D in it, particularly um, if the mother who is producing the breast milk is not sufficient in vitamin D and many, many um, people are not. And so what's particularly interesting about this new study is that rather than just looking at the content of the breast milk, um, or the you know serum levels of vitamin D in babies, they actually went so far as to do um, DEXA scan, which is a dual energy X-ray abs- absorbitometry DXA scan um, of the infant's body at one, four, and seven months of age, in order to compare the bone mineral content and the bone mineral density between babies in these different groups. And so this is basically the same kind of bone density that women have um, when they go through menopause and they're checking bone density. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like you put your whole body in the machine and they, you know, they talk more in the study about how it works and how they do it. Um, But to me, I was just, I think, impressed by the fact that they, you know, they, it was, it was a lot that went into this. They had babies who were given, you know, the typical vitamin D drops and the mothers were given their standard prenatal vitamin that had 400 um, each international units of vitamin D. And then they had um, placebos where the babies were given uh, placebos instead of the actual vitamin D and the moms were given um, their vitamin and a placebo pill or a vitamin that didn't have the vitamin D in it and another tablet that had um, 
or I guess the, the vitamins still had the 400 and they had another 6,000 um, of vitamin D. And so they had these different, uh, the different arms of the study allowing um, them to figure out really whether or not it made a difference. And in essence, it was a um, non-inferiority study. And for people who aren't familiar with that term, they're just trying to show that this option for treatment is not worse than the standard of care, which is done now. And, and that is in essence what this study showed. It found that high dose vitamin D supplementation of mothers during lactation proved efficacious as an alternative to direct supplementation of infants as evidenced by these DEXA scans on their bone mineral density. Hmm. That's so interesting. And so you talked about all these fancy arms, like all the placebos and blah, blah, blah. Um, do they actually have an arm of babies who did not receive vitamin D? They only got a placebo vitamin D and the mother only had a placebo? No. Okay. So they had either sort of standard treatment and then separate from that, there were actually three levels of maternal vitamin D. So there was the... Um, standard 400. There was the, and, and in the babies whose mother had higher doses, they were not given um, direct vitamin D, but in no group did both the mom and the baby have a placebo. That being said, they did find particularly in African-Americans, there were some babies that were vitamin D deficient within the first month of life. And this study was notable because it was done both um, in the Carolinas and in New York. Um, it was multi-center trial. So it was at different latitudes with different populations. Of course, as with many studies, it was a challenge getting enough minority participants. And there was a lot of attrition because this was, if, if people did not continue exclusive breastfeeding, they were eliminated um, from the data. So it was all of the participants whose data was analyzed had exclusively breastfed through six months of life. And how old were the babies when they had their DEXA done? One, four, and seven months. Oh, oh, they did. Wow, interesting. And then do you know if they controlled for the BMI of the mother? Like, Because one of my big concerns about just saying straight away, we probably have talked about this before, to say that 6,400 units of vitamin D3 is appropriate for a mother, you know, for, for a dyad. So the mother takes 6,400 and that's going to be enough for the baby is going to depend on her BMI because she's going to, with a higher BMI, she's going to need more vitamin D to get the same level in her breast milk. And that's been shown in some studies already. The um, BMI was not considered in this study. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. That's my big thing is that I just want to know for sure what is the level of the mother's her vitamin D, her, you know, 25 hydroxy vitamin D level, what does that translate into? Do we know for sure that she's going to have enough in her breast milk? And, the, and then the other thing is that when women take vitamin D, the vitamin D is within 24 hours is metabolized to 125 hydroxy and 125 hydroxy doesn't get into breast milk. So just the D3 as it is when it comes into this into the gut that will get into breast milk just for the first 24 hours. So if she decides she's going to take like 10,000 units three times a week or 20,000 units three times a week, the question is then what happens, you know, to the amount of the breast milk. 
It's all very interesting. And I think that certainly in my clinical work, when patients ask me these questions, particularly if they have a history, history of vitamin D insufficiency, I recommend directly supplementing the babies because I know that the baby's going to get enough. If they're hesitant, I recommend let's check your vitamin D levels and find out. But in terms of this study, it really isn't showing that every one of these babies got the right amount. It's showing that this was no worse than our standard care, which is that direct vitamin D to the baby. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's great. That's great. The more research we can get, the better. And the more that we can, you know, finally, you know, maybe we can finally come up with a true protocol in this, which we don't have quite yet. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, the topic I wanted to talk about now is about pumping. And uh, this is an article that was entitled Unseen, Unheard, a Qualitative Analysis of Women's Experiences of Exclusively Expressing Breast Milk. And this was published in the BMC Pregnancy and Childbirth um, Journal in 2022. And the, and the first author was Lisa Anders. So the researchers in the study were interested in sharing the experiences of lactating women uh, when exclusively pumping. But they cited that a lot of the previous research on exclusive pumpers has mainly been among those who intended to breastfeed but ended up having to exclusively pump for various reasons. And that research has shown that, exclusive, that women who exclusively pump have generally felt pretty unsupported by the healthcare providers and they had a sense of disappointment in their bodies. But we really don't know much about uh, how people feel about exclusively pumping when they never intended to breastfeed their baby. They, they intended to exclusively pump from the get-go. And I don't know about you, but I don't really have a lot of women in my practice who intend to exclusively pump. I mean, I do for multiples, and, and I think that's something I want to mention. Those who have exactly what I was going to say. Right. Yes, and I wanted to mention that too. So, um, so maybe I'll just move on with the study. So this, so this study was meant to explore experiences from women who intended to exclusively pump. They were they were recruited from Facebook groups, basically, and they actually had two groups that they recruited. One group that intended to directly breastfeed, but they ended up exclusively pumping. And then another group of 11 people who intended from the get-go during pregnancy to exclusively pump. Um, and although these groups were small, it was interesting to see that four of the 11 in the group who intended to exclusively pump were multips. So almost half of them were multips, or 40% basically. Um, whereas just two in the other group um, uh, intended uh, to uh, to exclusively pump, or um, I'm sorry, we're multips. So um, there were very few, and there were very few multips in the group that wanted to be successful breastfeeding. And that's been my experience: is that people who intend to exclusively pump have had so many problems in the past, or that's what they were comfortable with in the past, and that worked for them, particularly those with the high milk production. And they had, and when they would have the baby nurse, they just felt like they were just a mess. You know, they just could not control their production. And if they could just, you know, sort of, you know, open the tap three times a day, so to speak, and take out what they needed, they felt like they were in much better control. They didn't have to deal with, you know, recurrent mastitis and sores and plugs and babies being gassy and fussy and blah, blah, blah. blah. So it's very interesting that uh, for some people, this is what 
seems to work for them. Um, but anyway, um, they, so, they, so as with any qualitative research, they came up with themes um, in the data that they extracted from these interviews. So one theme was, uh, quote unquote, unseen and unheard, uh, that when these people who had the prenatal intent to, um, to exclusively pump, this was not something that was really talked about in the prenatal classes. And they felt like they, there wasn't like an opportunity to express this. And if they did, there wasn't any kind of conversation about it. Um, and that it almost made them feel like they weren't really breastfeeding mothers. They didn't fall into that category. And they also felt the same way in the hospital because when, when women give birth in the hospital, the assumption is, oh, you're gonna, you're gonna breastfeed or, or formula feed. And if you're gonna breastfeed, okay, here's your baby at the rest. And so to actually say, well, wait a minute, I want to change that. Like, yes, I want to provide my breast milk, but I don't want to breastfeed is almost like a reframing. And there's, there ought to be some sort of different routine to that. And some felt like that was kind of thought of as, as being weird, you know, by the hospital staff. Um, and then uh, one person said that when they were, when asked by the baby's doctor, if they were going to breastfeed or formula feed, they felt like the doctor thought they were crazy when they said, well, I'm just going to pump breast milk. And um, she said that one mother said that the pediatrician didn't really, she didn't feel like the pediatrician really got to know her because she was just doing this. Like she wasn't, didn't seem as invested in the whole, what was going to happen feeding wise between her and the baby because she was just going to pump. Uh, they also uh, described feeling downgraded because they were just going to pump, like it was cheating or something like that. That's the way I inter I don't think they use the word cheating, but that's kind of how I interpreted it. Um, they also felt they also said that there's this feeling of being judged, you know, um, when feeding a bottle in public. And you can imagine how that can happen, Karen, right? Like especially you know, people tell me that all the time. What that they feel judged oh, when yeah. they're bottle feeding? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, I, and I wonder if it comes like also, like I remember one time when my kids were little and, um, you know, all they hear, you know, when I'm on the phone or if I'm working, I'm always talking about breastfeeding, right? So one time we were out and about and my son, I think he was six or something, he said, um, look, mom, that person's giving a bottle, like she should be breastfeeding. And I'm like, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. Like, you know, but um, understanding, you know, what you know, all the challenges and all the reasons why people express breast milk, you know, that's not quite understood by so many people who maybe had a really easy time breastfeeding. Um, and so uh, it becomes kind of like a stigma. Oh. Um, oh, go ahead. I'll wait till see if you cover it before I ask oh, okay. my burning questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, some said that they felt like uh, people didn't believe that they would actually bond with their babies. And some people were told that they wouldn't be giving all of their antibodies to the baby. Um, right. Others uh, were told they weren't really breastfeeding and have been asked if they would like to try to latch. So that's the other thing is that, and I don't know if you have encountered this in your clinic, but when people say, I'm just, I'm just pumping. And then, you know, I have found myself saying, do you have any interest in latching? I just ask that. And, you know, I think now I, maybe I won't after reading this because perhaps if they, perhaps the question is, did you intend to exclusively pump when you were pregnant? And if they said yes, I wouldn't even ask them if they're interested in latching because they obviously aren't because that was not their intention, right? 
Yeah, and, I mean, I think I like to ask the question, what caused you to decide on exclusive pumping? Um, because it really, you know, opens the door for them to say, I had a rough time with my first, or I, you know, just like this better. And sometimes they're like, well, I just didn't think I'd be able to. And that's when I can go on and ask the question, or I was having trouble. Do you want, do you want help? Yeah. It's amazing how complicated those discussions can be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, right, absolutely. I mean, it, it could be a very long conversation. It could be a very interesting conversation. And also kind of teaching people about how babies are very flexible and how latch is very instinctual and still present for many, many months. So that if they don't latch in the first couple of weeks, especially for those who didn't intend to exclusively pump, um, how we could help them. Like, oh, latch, right? yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, I think one of my biggest sort of frustrations with a lot of the care that people are given is they're given messages that are, oh, your, you know, your baby was given a bottle in the hospital and now they're not going to latch and, and not sort of in prenatal classes saying, you know, this is the like typical way it's supposed to go. But if things go off the rails, you can still do these things to buy time for two, four or six weeks or more. Right, right. Um, among those who intended to breastfeed, but it didn't work, many of those individuals said that they felt like they failed. And uh, the phrase breast is best really triggered them because they felt like they weren't really breastfeeding and they felt just basically unsuccessful. So another theme that was uh, identified was missed opportunities for healthcare support. So one mother said that no one offered the exclusive pumping option. And uh, if she didn't discover this on her own, she would have just formula fed. Like she had no idea that this was an option. Um, so, uh, you know, so then that kind of brings up the question when you're working with people prenatally and you say, you know, what, what do you, you know, how do you plan to feed your baby? Do you plan to breastfeed or do you plan, do you plan to quote unquote bottle feed? Well, bottle feeding is not the right question, right? Do you plan to, breastfeed or provide your own milk versus not lactate and, you know, provide formula. Um, so I think that I thought that was interesting and something that we need to consider when we have these conversations when people are pregnant. Um, so there was a comment about how doctors talk about breast is best and some discuss um, uh, discussed that healthcare providers discourage exclusive pumping and some felt that um, hospital nurses were supportive. Whereas another participant in the study said that she was given formula at discharge in case exclusive pumping didn't work out. So it wasn't really trusted that this is something that she could really do. Um, and um, one mother said that she was even offered formula supplementation and not donor milk supplementation for her baby because she was exclusively pumping and not uh, directly nursing. So there was this assumption that, you know, she's not serious about it. So that's the other thing is that I do think in our society in the United States, there are a lot of people who really prefer to exclusively pump. And, I, and I've heard this again and again from various women that, you know, they're not taken seriously. Um, well, whereas, whether they prefer to or not, there are right. a lot of people who are doing it. And yes. I think that often in my practice, I say we need better 
like peer support groups for people who are in this group because they feel isolated and there are tons of them, but they don't, you know, know perhaps they're finding each other more online, but it would be nice to have, you know, pandemic aside, a place for those people to get to have some community. Yeah. But I do think when you think about like the patients that you see in the office, you know, let's say you're working with, you know, a, a family who whose baby is, you know, takes a long time to feed or the baby's not a great extractor or, you know, whatever reason things are difficult at the breast or they have pain and they go to do some pumping and you see them back and you say, how are things going? And, and they say, well, things are going so much better. And um, knowing that they were doing some pumping, I'll ask how, how's, you know, how often are you nursing for this pumping? They'll say, oh, well, you know, I'm only nursing once or twice a day and then, I'm also, and then I'm pumping the rest of the time. And there's, they oftentimes say this in a way that is um, almost shameful or, um, or that they did fail. I, I, I see it all the time. And I think um, it's, it's important for us to really support these individuals and say, you know what, you're doing such an amazing job. You know, it's okay to do this. Um, and so I think we just need uh, this, this paper just really spoke to me, like really helping them feel really good about what they're doing because it is such an amazing amount of work too. Well, and I think it just, it really like, okay. So my burning question was in the folks who were primips who said they were intending to exclusively pump and obviously they had not had prior difficulty breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. Was there any commentary on what their reasons were for choosing that route? No, no, that wasn't in this study. Well, because I think, you know, for what you were saying, I have a ton, like my patient population is generally older, you know, like three months is a very common time for my patients to present. And a lot of them are um, like lactastrophes, as I like to say. And so many of those people were doing a lot of pumping because breastfeeding wasn't going very well. And it is really interesting. It just, it highlights how there isn't sufficient inform, good information for patients that is available to explain to them sort of what are your options? Like, I think often you and I talk about like, oh, you know, we don't have, we're not teaching people the red flags, like, breastfeeding education is taught as though everything is going to go normally, but people need to know if this and this are happening, that's a sign that you need to get help. Sort of similar to that, I think as people get a little further out and things are not quite on track, having that like menu of options, I like to always explain to my patients and be like, okay, so it depends on what your values are. There are different options that you have. If it's really important to you to have a latching baby, these are the steps in the direction to move that way. If it's really important to you to maximize the amount of milk you give your baby, then these are the things that are important. And, you know, they lack perspective because a lot of people come and they're maybe they're um, six weeks postpartum and they've been exclusively pumping. And they say to me, this is, you know, it's working for me. And I, I'm just going to do this. I just want to get, you know, that extra four ounces of milk a day that I need. And I will, you know, talk to them about it a little bit more. And, you know, why do they not want to latch the baby at this point? And it's because of troubles that they had in the past. And I will say to them, you know, sometimes if we try this or that and the baby starts latching one time a day, 
it gets better as they get older and people really like it. And I'm not pressuring you, but if it's something that you, you know, if it worked, you would want that piece of the puzzle, then we still have time to do it. And it is amazing how many people do that and they become more and more successful and they end up with a latching baby. And they say to me, I am so grateful, even if they're doing half and half, to have mm-hmm. the option when I leave the house to not have to worry about yes. pumping sometimes. And, exactly. And I think that's a really hard thing for you and I when we meet people and they say, oh, I just want to pump, to very respectfully because we have a lot of experience with what that can be like when it's not going well for people to, you know, sort of say, oh, you know, what's your reason for that? Here are the pluses and minuses. And all of those conversations can take a long time. And yeah, so absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's challenging. Yes, absolutely. Um, so another theme was missed opportunities for healthcare support. Um, when, oh, no, I, I mentioned that one. Um, a third theme was doing it my way. Um, and many described how they really had to fight for their production and work hard to keep it going, but really had a sense of pride and satisfaction with being able to achieve and maintain sufficiency. And some felt like exclusive pumping just worked really well for them. Um, and, you know, they had various reasons like uh, the baby wasn't nursing well or having breast pain. Um, and some actually, so this is among the group who intended to breastfeed, who weren't successful with just breastfeeding, with just directly feeding. Um, some said that they didn't really like direct feeding. They found that they, they, it wasn't enjoyable. They didn't feel confident about the latch. They were nervous about whether the baby's getting enough milk. Um, latch just seemed to be super stressful for them. And I do see that a fair amount where people just almost have PTSD about the amount of pain that they had before. Or another big thing is that where the baby you know, presents at two to three weeks and is terribly, you know, hasn't gained for two weeks and they thought they could trust the baby and they, and then they found out they couldn't trust the baby and they never will trust that baby again when it comes never to- Never trust a baby. I say that all the time. <laughs> and so, but we want them to be able to trust the baby, right? That we want, we want there to be communication between the, the parent and the baby. Um, so some felt like they just couldn't go back to that again. Um, and then some felt like it just gave them a lot of freedom to help other people feed and they liked that. A few people said that they just started, you know, they went off to pumping pretty quickly because they um, felt like they were gonna pump at work anyway. So it seemed fine to get into the rhythm of pumping regularly. So after feeding for a short time, they decided to do that. And then there was also this, this theme of self-control. Um, they had control over the whole process. They could track their volumes or output. And some people really like routines a lot. And it almost seems to me like it's easier to put a baby on a schedule who's bottle feeding than breastfeeding because you can get this measured amount every time. Whereas a baby, you know, who's directly breastfeeding, um, they, um, you know, they're like at a buffet. So they're just constantly here and there. Um, so, you know, I think for some of those comments, I think we've talked before about how the concern about like, is my baby getting enough? I want to measure the volume that, you know, we should pay attention to, uh, you know, postpartum anxiety disorders, mood disorders, a history of OCD. But in reality, you know, sometimes we're not going to fix those problems right away. And this, if this is the best way for them to manage, they could get counseling, they could see someone, but in the meantime, they need to be successful and feed their babies. So it's fine. Um, and then one person said, it's my body and I'll choose what I want to do with it. They didn't want to nurse in public. They knew that they did not want to do that. 
they didn't want the babies touching their breasts. And some of the participants said that they just feel so touched out at the end of the day by directly feeding all the time that they didn't want anyone else touching them. Um, and that was a reason uh, for pumping as well. So I thought that was interesting. And then the final, um, the final theme, you know, set of themes was getting in the groove. Uh, and I thought that was an interesting choice of words. Uh, but they felt like they had to rely on various social media resources like Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube videos to try to figure out all the things like what, what's the equipment I need? What are all these different hacks? What are the different flange sizes? Um, and uh, so they didn't, they couldn't really rely on their healthcare providers or other resources, like one person said, I normally like to go to the CDC to get my information, but there's nothing there about exclusive pumping. Um, so we could, you know, do a better job at having that standardized education. Um, the other thing is that many who, uh, many felt that the journey of exclusive pumping was really challenging. And so many of them decided that they would, they would adjust by just having short-term goals and just wait and see. So they, you know, so some said, you know what, I'm just going to see if I can get to two months and then maybe I'll add a month to three months. And then if I can get to three months, I'll see if I can get to four months. And I thought that was a really good way of sort of, um, you know, not disappointing oneself and being realistic about how difficult this can be. Um, and then some said that they tried to reframe their pumping time from being tied to a machine to time that they can decompress. So time that they can distract themselves with something like watching a movie, using their phone, getting out of doing laundry, you know, all the different things. Um, I thought that was good too, you know, to kind of totally reframe um, how miserable one can be when one has to take off the pump every time. Um, and, well, um, and yeah. that thing you said about being touched out, like I joke with my mom friends, like never before I had kids did I understand how awesome it is to be alone. Yeah, exactly. I'm a big extrovert, but like, then I was like, oh my God, I was at home. No one was there. It was great. Yeah, exactly. Or like my patients who are um, lactating, who are in the room, without any baby or any children or any partner or anyone. And they're like looking at their phone or the reading magazine. They're like, this is pretty awesome. Like I have time to myself in this room. <laughs> I wish you would have come. I wish you were, I wish you were running late doctor. So we could spend <laughs> more time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I just wanted to close this, you know, article just with one uh, comment, which is that if you were working with someone prenatally, who plan to exclusively pump. You know, when you put a pump on right after birth, right? There's really hardly any milk. So how do we work with these families to prevent these babies from getting formula in the hospital? Because inevitably they're gonna to be told, we well, don't have anything, so you should just, you know, give formula. Whereas um, we just had a research lecture um, with um, Dr. Paula Meyer, and she was talking about secretory activation and showed a recent study that demonstrated that uh, this was a study that was done, I think, in 2009 that actually looked at pre and post feed weights in the first day among newborns. And they basically transfer for the entire day about at the most 15 ml. <laughs> so the expectation is different, right? If they're going to get it from a bottle that you can see versus actually. Um, you know, directly feeding. Absolutely. I mean, this has been so, such an interesting thing in our hospital over the last 
few months is they've started giving more donor milk. And Mm -hmm. I like babies that never would have gotten supplemented before are getting these humongous volumes over the course of a couple of days. And I'm like, okay, you know, I know that we say that those first meals can be five mLs, but I walk around and check all the breasts and hand express and babies are not getting five mLs per feeding. So I think it's just later on, people are worried. They can't see how much the baby is getting and transfer, but in the couple of days in the hospital, it's actually a good thing. People are like, Oh yeah, they're feeding for 20 minutes. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, years ago, I mean, back in the 1990s, early two thousands, before we ever talked about hand express and giving this classroom to babies, if the babies didn't nurse well, and this was before we did skin to skin really on a regular basis, so that the you know the baby was bathed and weighed and did all the things, and then brought to the to the breast, and of course they were so stressed out by then that they didn't you know go to the breast, and then we would say it's okay for the first twenty four hours if they don't eat at all, they have to lose all that fluid, and so we used to not even care about it, you know, we didn't we didn't even have people hand express any costume, but I think for this group who plans to exclusively pump, I think. You know, the question is like, how do we, what should we educate them on? And it seems to me like this is probably a really good group to be employing antenatal expression, to have them start to store up some colostrum before they go to the hospital so they can give that baby that milk and then really teaching them. And and it also gives them that opportunity to practice hand expression so that after the baby's born, they can hand express colostrum on a spoon, give it to the baby. That's going to be so much more effective than pumping anyway um, in that first day. Um, And also it goes to the like really important need to talk to patients prenatally about what their intention is, because I would say I have patients who come who say I'm planning to exclusively pump, but that doesn't always mean that they're not willing to latch the baby in the first few weeks. That may be fine. They don't have anything against it. That's just not their, their main plan for after the first couple of days. And so certainly um, because of what you just um, highlighted, which I think is, you know, so important, that is something that would be helpful to tease out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. This is. Uh, I thought. Yeah, I just really like this article, and I and I think oh, that great. it would be it would be wonderful if prenatal classes, the prenatal breastfeeding classes, actually talked about, um, you know, uh, exclusive pumping if that is going to be something that people choose. So, all right. It was really great talking to you. It was fun as usual. Yes. And I look forward to talking to you uh, in a couple weeks. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.